0: Hello, humans, and welcome to Sinister Soup. Today, we have another author interview for you, Um, Matthew Seska, the author of The Forbidden Scrolls, a fantasy novel, the first book in a fantasy trilogy. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great, Travis. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, Thank you for coming on the show today. Could you uh, maybe give give the listeners a little overview? What is The Forbidden Scrolls about?
1: Um, The concept is basically that it's a story of a young thief who has stolen an object of power and then has been betrayed by the person that uh, she stole it for. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the novel that sets up uh, the entire journey, but uh, it's also the one that leads her back to the one place she doesn't ever want to go, which is the city she was raised in. So it's a it's an interesting kind of story in that regard. It's a little bit of a chase uh, kind of story, but it's also got a lot of familiar fantasy trappings as well.
0: I want to talk right away. I'm glad you introduced it, starting with kind of Julia, because that's one of my main questions. I want to start with here is what motivated you to make your primary character non-magical amongst this whole cast of like very magical people? Because I loved that. Well, there's a couple of
1: things there. One she is kind of the readers portal into the world. So I assume that the readers aren't sorcerers or clerics or anything like that. So they, yeah. they, they having that sort of uh, everyman uh, kind yeah. of portal into the world, I think works really well. Um, the other thing is she is a morally gray character in a world of kind of black and white. Obviously she goes on a journey and that journey is both, personal and you know actually you know travels across the world and all that but there's a certainly amount of change that goes through her and i think it's important that for a character that goes through that much change to have them be be rooted in reality a little bit more than maybe some of the other characters in the book
2: you uh you did this completely selflessly for the readers you're saying um no no particular infatuation with the rogue class uh,
1: no, that's not... I mean, well, let's be honest. I am what is uh, colloquially known as the forever DM. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, I, uh, my main uh, when I do get to play is usually a rogue. Using the D&D reference here, uh, Julia and the main villain Frost have been kind of kicking around in my head for about almost 20 years because I was going to run a D&D campaign where he was going to be the villain. And she was going to be the npc that dragged the rest of the characters through it and it never the game just never happened Um, and then when i started running other stuff it kind of slipped to the back of my mind but after i finished my first book the stairs in the woods and i was looking for something to write about next it was the obvious choice
0: i i totally am with you there man on the forever dm slot (laughs) i i'm stuck in running quite a few games i love being a dm but sometimes i'm like hey and, like I actually,
1: to <laughs> and I actually, the game I'm running right now
0: takes place in the world from
1: these books just about five years after the books finish, the trilogy is over.
0: So. Oh, that's amazing.
1: Which is nice because I don't have to, you know, use somebody else's world. I've got one already
0: in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How? What was your world building process? Like, how do you start and where do you, I mean, what's your kind of like method to world building? So...
1: I started small. I started with Barnall, actually, the town that the book started in. And I kind of went out from there. Um, And then I used a program. um, I forget what it's called. But I used a program online to, you know, create the world the way I wanted it and the way you see it for the most part. And then I hired an artist to actually create the map that you see in the book. And I kind of already knew what kind of geography I wanted, what kind of sociology i wanted what you know across the world and whatnot so it was nice to to actually see it all there and have that um image to actually use what i was writing the story because i had the map done before i actually started writing the, uh, mm-hmm. the majority of the book
0: that's uh, i'm always interested to hear other people's methods because that's kind of how i when i make maps for for and i tell people i just like draw a shape mm-hmm. and then i like kind of put cities places and then Mm -hmm. from that shape and from those cities, I'm like, okay, what are the like sociological political things that made this land look like this? Like I get the picture first and then fill in the blanks. So. Yeah. It's fairly similar uh, in that regard. Um,
1: Starting with that small place where, you know, everything's going to begin and growing out from there, kind of like you would if you were running a D and D campaign, because whatever city you're starting in, or small town, or whatever, you have to know that. And everything else around the edges could be kind of blurry. And you just slowly work your way out as you grow. And I think that's kind of the thing that I did with this as I was building the world, even as I was just kind of starting to write. And I built it out from there. And I had the map done about halfway through writing of the first book. And I think that helped quite a bit as I kept expanding how everything was going to be
2: and where everyone was going to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of mindset with your world works great with your character idea, your character design to kind of put the readers in the in the first-person lens as well because they're discovering the world as you're sort of discovering it as well. Um, it's a very DM kind of mindset that you got. I, li- I like that a lot.
1: And one of the things I like to do, because certainly you want to avoid law avoid the long exposition where you're just you're just giving them the history of the world or whatever is using that kind of idea like from a dm perspective of using like story time where you have a conversation between two characters and you have this character that's your main character that doesn't really know a lot of stuff because of how they're raised and what kind of life they've led and then you are able to tell people about the history of the world as if it's one character talking to the other teaching them so you get kind of this dynamic that works really well where you're able to give the care uh, the, the reader this background information blog of just and so and so new so and so that reads like the similar alien you know um, yeah and i think that works really well especially in today's um for today's reader because nobody wants to read 16 pages of exposition
0: it's yeah. just yeah <laughs> yeah Clay, clayton and i have talked about. Um, that that's reminding me big time of like the name of the wind and how his character, like you get kind of those sections of exposition, but it's at college. So it's like, it was so cool to have a character like go to school. Cause then it's like, whenever you need something about the world, there's there a professor that he's like, Hey, what's this? And the professor's like, Oh, it's this. And it seems natural. So I, I definitely agree with you. Nothing pulls me out more quickly than like, welcome to, to this world where everything is like this because of this, you know, you're just out.
1: And if you've read Dune and then you've seen the new movie, you know the difference between the book where there are those long sections of exposition and there is all that internal monologue. And they do such a good job in the new movie of showing versus telling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they add in the little sprinkles of dialogue to give you that information that took five pages in the book to, to tell you. So no. uh, it's a similar type of concept there. And I think, especially as writers, we tend to get wrapped up just in using other books as like source and ideas on how to write, but certainly every type of media uh, where there's narrative, you can learn something from.
0: Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up too. I've just been thinking about this a lot because I'm working on a couple of fantasy books right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking writing my characters the other day I, I almost caught myself writing one of those exposition conversations. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, how many normal people actually know the history of the world? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like when I, when I talk to people about history, they're usually like, eh, yeah, all right, I'll take your word for it. You seem to know plenty about that. But right. like like there are certainly people who do. Like your average everyday person, like how much do you think they actually know about their own like country's history let alone the history of the world you know
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and if you can do it in such a way where you're invoking almost a sense of mythology as well I think that works really well Mm -hmm. Um, one of the scenes I did in Forbidden Scrolls is there's a scene where the main character Julia is having a conversation with kind of the mentor character Elithias and he's telling her the story of how the two moons came into the sky and it's like, so it's got this mytholo- mythological kind of spin to it as well. So it helps drag in, draw in the reader while still keeping it, you know, because you're keeping it interesting, but you're also explaining the world building as well while you're doing
2: it. Mm-hmm. That's another mechanic that Rothfuss loves to use as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of, I do, I, so I think your character building is definitely like, it read to me more like modern fantasy, but you you have a lot of roots in classic fantasy, as you mm-hmm. sort of mentioned with unique twists, but what would you say is one of your, like, biggest literary inspirations? Um,
1: Stephen King, actually.
0: Uh, I've read far more
1: uh, horror than I have fantasy throughout my life, but one of the things that I think King does really well is characterization, Um, and I hope that some of that is translated over. I'm not on his level in that regard, Cause he can write two sentences about a person and you know who that character is. You're like, Oh yeah, that's Bob. That's my mechanic down there. Uh, the, you know, um, he's got a big dog too, man. I'd hate it if that thing ever went rabid. So, you know, you kind of <laughs> get that from him where you just learn how to build characters so that they feel like real people. Um, and also I write fantasy and who doesn't want just a little bit of gore in their fantasy sometimes. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um but then obviously, Tolkien, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, Rothfuss, who you've mentioned, um, Ursula Le Guin—those uh, mm-hmm. are probably some of my big fantasy uh, mentor, not mentors, uh, influences.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Cujo specifically because I will never forget the first. Like, I think there's a section when. I can't remember the guy's name it's been forever that i read the book but i remember this description of him walking outside of his house and he's it's describing him like peeing on his plants and hoping they die from the amount of alcohol in his urine and i was just <laughs> like that tells me who that guy is like right away exactly and a lot you of know? his
1: books are like that um and also a lot of his books while there may be monsters or whatever that the people often are the real monsters and mm-hmm. I think that kind of plays into the idea of like, you know, Frost is a sorcerer, the, you know, my villain in my story, but he's still a human. He's still a person. And it's actually the his background and the way he was raised and what he thinks and his opinions of what his family should be that make him the villain.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one dimensional villains that are like black or white or that's never, never going to be as good of a villain as a villain with some legitimate like psychological issues in the past and all that stuff
1: and whereas a lot of times you'll see villains who are written as such that where they're meant to be sympathetic um where you you like you at first like oh this guy's really evil and then you get to normal but it, like oh i i understand um i kind of went the opposite way with frost where i intentionally made him less you know, lose humanity more and more as he quested for power so like mm. you see these little touches of humanity maybe in the first book little bit the second book
2: and by the time you get to the end of the third book you're like he's gone <laughs> he's yeah gone. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not a human anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's an interesting way to do it and i i think like uh i like that kind of flip of the general progression of the antagonist because that is usually how you see it happen like it starts out like oh they're just they're just the worst mm-hmm. and then as you learn more and more you learn that they they are a human and they came from this place and i like the idea of flipping it the other way that's that's kind of like the adolf hitler track you know yes like when when he started out everyone was like oh this guy's pretty cool like he's gonna help us out he's doing great things and by the end everybody in the whole world was like uh no hard no
1: (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you know to be fair there is some idea of racism and whatnot that goes into the creation of frost as a character he comes from a city where they take the like half breeds like the half elves the half orcs that sort of thing throw them into the slums leave them there to die uh and he's a necromancer which i mean shows that if you can dehumanize one group of people you can dehumanize them all
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: so there's a parallel
0: there for a reason Mm -hmm. right right Mm right That definitely is like valuable commentary to have stories now in the past, like always, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but I like I do. I agree with Clay. I like that you. Yeah, making making the end be like non-sympathetic, you understand why they did the thing they did, but it's not like a sympathetic take, because I think I mean, otherwise you get schools of thought like Thanos was right, which is happening (laughs) Like right. a lot with Marvel, because mm-hmm. he's, he's done in kind of a cookie-cutter way, so there's this whole group of people that's like, oh, yeah, he was just trying to save the universe. It's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to walk away from this story. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he, did he want to save the universe, or did he want to be
1: remembered as a god? <laughs> yeah, exactly. the universe? It's all about the narcissism there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, if you annihilate a, a whole planet, you're still annihilating a whole planet, mm-hmm. no matter what you do it for like, exactly. <laughs> it's not a good thing. Let's not, let's not do that. Right. Absolutely.
0: I I am curious to know, do you have any advice for authors for writing an amazing opening? Because what a first chapter, man. Well done. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, what I
1: often try to do is start with a line that's going to grab your attention or, uh start where you're right into the action so like if you ever watched the old show farscape on mm-hmm. the sci-fi channel where everything like every episode started and you were already knee deep in something you know it was just up to the up to the viewer to catch up um and i kind of went for that sort of approach with, with the Forbidden scrolls where things are already going up and this is in the first chapter like and i also wanted to kind of turn uh, a traditional kind of trope on its head there where you have the People will mourn a uh, moan about the I wake up and, you know, uh, type of opening for a book. And yeah, I did that with this, but it was she wakes up and she's in the place that she robbed the last night and she's covered in blood covered bandages. And so something has already happened. And then I kind of do the flashback the next couple of chapters to fill you in on what happens, but also set up the whole revenge angle for her going forward. So. Mm-hmm uh it is i think either starting right in the action or um with a line that really grabs your attention right off and if you can do those things together i mean you're really going to be in a good place to get uh,
0: the reader's attention quickly because that's the whole point getting their attention and keeping it as you go and i think what i liked so much about it was um you see so many times in fantasy, there's, like, you start off with this character who's, like, either building their power, or coming into their power, or, like, already has their power. And later, their weakness gets exposed. But I love that with Julia, it's, like, the first chapter you see her, it's, like, oh, she, like, almost died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, right away, you're setting up this character of, like, she has weaknesses. Mm-hmm. She's not perfect. And then later I'll show you where her strengths are, but like you start with her kind of like, you would have died if not for this other person. And I really enjoyed that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I also lean into her flaws very early on. I mean, Mm -hmm. she self medicates with fire whiskey quite often. Mm -hmm. And it's also what got her into that situation in the first place. And, you know, as she deals with more and more things throughout, she she keeps going back to that same crutch. Because it's, like a lot of us, we tend to self-medicate that way rather than dealing with our our trauma. Mm -hmm. And she certainly has a lot of it.
2: When I'm writing stories, I often have this, like, image or idea of, like, a character doing something. Like, for example, in my most recent book, like, uh, I have this image of, like, a mage facing off a, like, panzer division. Facing off against, like, a panzer division in World War II um just that was like the first image in my head that inspired me to write it um i know this started as a campaign for you but do you have one of those like first images or first concepts that was like vivid in your head of this story
1: yeah and it was the moment where she's betrayed uh in the first book um where frost and his bodyguard almost kill her and i think That, I think, is such an important scene because it sets up everything that happens after that. It sets up, it gives her her motivation for the entire story. um, And it also sets up Frost as, this guy's an asshole. I mean, (laughs) he he made a deal with this woman and then he tried to kill her. And it's the same, I always had that same idea of, you know, it was the, the bodyguard who tries to kill her. She's got the scar that runs all the way down her body because of it. And that the things that from there all built from that. Um, and whenever I start something, I always start with a scene and the characters and how it creates those characters. And then I build the rest of the story from there as I write. I'm not a person who plots it out. I discover as I go when I write mm-hmm based on the idea of that scene that's kind of what I visualized in the beginning that I'm drawing everything from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, li- I like to do the same thing. I've, every time I've tried to plot things out, I just end up like setting unrealistic expectations for myself or feeling like I'm too like corralled into going a certain way.
1: Absolutely, and I think one of the things that's most important for me, especially as character building and character development is most important to me when I'm writing and when I'm reading is that when you plot it, sometimes if you've built a character a certain way, but the plot requires you to do this other thing is you sometimes end up going against what the character would do for the sake of the plot. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not saying that there's a wrong or right way to do this because when people plot, you can have some great books that way too. It's just for the way that I write, I find that it's counterintuitive because if I'm trying to force you to go from plot B to plot, but the character wants to go to point z because mm-hmm. that's what they would do that's what you need to do and you have to find your way to back to that point that you know they need to get to mm-hmm. but have it happen in a way that happens naturally for the character and not force it in such a way that it doesn't
0: yeah i i feel like i don't write i don't write um yet i mean i plan to in the future but i'm, I'm not writing anything currently but from the dm standpoint that's I feel like that's D D, like to me at least i i kind of railroad but don't you know because i'll have okay they have to make it from here to here but everything else in between can be chaos so that like if a character tells me i don't want to go into that bar i got to be ready to be like okay like you don't <laughs> like, and here's you another plot look <laughs> instead. yeah mm-hmm. here's another different place you can go that will probably we'll get back to... there eventually, against your will or not, but we'll
2: get back yeah, exactly. there. <laughs> if you have to get knocked out and wake up there, you will go there. But <laughs> you... <laughs> I've done that. <laughs>
1: not going to lie. This last campaign, I literally, I started the whole thing where my players were all spread out across the world wherever they were. They all went to sleep. They had a shared dream with a green dragon in a world where dragons are extinct and then they woke up together in a kobold lair like congratulations right. you're a team now good luck get out <laughs> get out of this dungeon
2: <laughs> it would have been really awkward if one of them wanted to play a kobold.
1: oh absolutely yeah. um because four of my six players are brand new i kept it to just player's handbook
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah good yeah. call good call yeah. it gets weird
1: it does um, but since you, you were asking about world building and stuff earlier, the DMG, the Dungeon Master's Guide is a plethora of treasure trove of world building material for anybody who's interested in writing fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. It's honestly one of the best tools out there mm-hmm. uh, for anyone who wants to learn world building. That's absolutely say,
2: true.
0: I would say too, like to go so far as to say like not even just fantasy because uh, I, I heard a quote the other day that I just loved that was about Stephen King of mm-hmm. like, world building isn't just fantasy like Derry, the town is Mm -hmm. an incredible world it is so fully realized you could live in it and it's not a fantasy story it's a horror story a modern day story but like there's always going to be an element of world building in whatever you write it just might not be as prominent as it is in fantasy but yeah i think those skills translate to any genre oh absolutely they do and i think
1: um the world is often a character in my mind it's a minor character maybe a little bit more of a major character in a fantasy setting than in some other settings but it is a character it has a life and a mind of its own and it's important mm-hmm. to build it in such a way no matter what you're writing whether it be fantasy romance horror whatever it may be the world is a living breathing place and it has to it has to be written that
2: way absolutely well thank you very much for uh talking all things fantasy novel and D&D with us today Matthew Absolutely. Um, we're going to carry on here with an excerpt from your book and I am going to read that right now It took a few minutes for Julia's eyes to adjust to the light but eventually she opened them the glare almost blinding her as she did so. Once they had cleared, she glanced around, wondering for a moment why the afterlife looked like the inside of the tower she'd just been in the night before. It hit her. She must actually be alive. Thank the gods, she thought to herself. That would have been a hell of a letdown if this was what the other side looked like. She laughed a little bit involuntarily, and that's when the pain hit her. It was like her entire torso was on fire, causing her to let out an involuntary grunt. She looked down and saw that instead of wearing a shirt, what she assumed to have once been white bandages across much of her chest and midsection were all coated the crimson shade of her own blood. She tried to sit up, but to move even a few inches was agonizing, and she laid herself back in the bed in a hurry. She had no idea where she was or how she got there. So, you're awake, said a voice from across the room. It sounded male, but relatively young to her ears. Maybe not young, she thought, but perhaps inexperienced. She cautiously turned her head and looked over in the direction that the voice had come from, and she saw a familiar face. The same boyish looks and bright blond hair that she had seen in her foray into the monastery the night before, his brown eyes glaring at her. The trickle of blood her sap had left emanating from the fresh lump on the back of his head seemed to have been cleaned up but he looked haggard nonetheless, as if he had perhaps not gotten much sleep since the night before. I guess so, she said flatly, trying not to betray any emotion she might have about her current situation. How did I get here, she asked, turning her head and looking back to the ceiling. Mr. Titus heard you fall and went up to check on you in your room, the young guard replied. It's a good thing, too, or else you would have bled out so the tavern owner had heard something she filed the information away in the back of her mind for later she'd need to question him and see if he saw where frost and his foreign bodyguard had gone the young blonde guard walked over to her and placed two fingers on the side of her wrist your heart is strong now and that's a good sign and the high priest will want to speak to you now that you're awake he walked back over to the door keeping an eye on her as he went and opened the door slightly and murmured something to someone on the other side before closing it once more julia could see him out the corner of her eye sit down in a chair by the door but she continued to stare up at the ceiling a few minutes passed before there was a light rapping at the door julia turned her head slightly to get a better view and saw the guard stepping aside to let another man in he was tall with short blonde hair blue eyes and sharp features his pointed ears gave him away as an elven and his silvery-blue robes seemed to almost reflect with the soft glow of the sunlight coming into the room from the window high above them. He walked over, pulled up a chair from the corner of the room before he sat down next to the bed. He looked down at Julia and gave her a warm smile. "'Well, you're looking better,' he said to her. "'Let's see how that wound is coming along.' He started gently lifting the bandages near her hip and working his way slowly up her midsection while inspecting the wound. Julia couldn't bring herself to look down and see it for herself. She remembered seeing the life pour out of her body the night before. Worse yet, she remembered feeling it. Some of these have opened back up a bit, he said after examining them a moment. I'm guessing that you moved when you woke up? He looked her in the eyes, and she nodded reflexively in response. Well, let's see what we can do about that. He clasped his hands with palms together as if in prayer, and began to chant something under his breath. Julia was fairly adept at reading lips. It came with the territory of her chosen vocation. Sometimes she had to sit on the other side of a room and watch two people speaking to get information for her job. Sometimes it was recovering information itself, which was the job. But she did not recognize whatever language the elf was speaking. After he had repeated the same unfamiliar refrain a couple times, he unclasped his hands and laid them on her midsection with the fingers splayed right above the wound. As he placed his hands on her, she could feel her body growing warmer, and the pain began to subside. The whole while, the priest continued chanting peacefully under his breath. When he finally lifted his hands off of her and stopped reciting the unknown language, the warmth stayed in Julia's body for a moment and then slowly faded away. The pain from the wound had faded as well. Let's see how it looks now, the priest said, examining her wound below the bandages again. Oh yes, that will do nicely. He looked her in the eyes and said, It looks like you won't be needing these any more," While lightly touching one of the blood-soaked bandages. I'll allow you to take them off in private after I leave, if you would prefer. There's a spare tunic lying at the foot of the bed for you. Julia looked at him, somewhat incredulously. You're saying I'm healed? she asked. He simply nodded his head. Testing herself slowly, Julia attempted to sit up. The pain she had felt earlier had gone. She arched her back slightly in a stretch and again felt nothing. Her curiosity overcame her, and she looked down and ripped the bandages off her shoulder and chest. There was a ghastly pink scar that had started on her shoulder and cut across her body where the wound had once been. She poked at the part of the scar that had been cut across the fleshy part of her breast but felt no pain. I don't suppose there's anything you can do about the scar?" she asked, and the priest shook his head. He was looking at her face sympathetically, but also with a sense of professional detachment. Julia noticed the young guard behind him seemed to have far less control over where his eyes wandered. Julia smiled at him over the priest's shoulder and blew him a kiss, causing him to blush and look away. "'Braddock, could you give the young lady and I a moment, please?' the priest said, without looking over his shoulder. Julia noticed, though, he had phrased the request as a question. It was clearly intended as an order. Ah, yes, your grace, replied the young guard, regathering his wits about himself. I'll be right outside. He slipped out the door and closed it gently behind him. I apologize for Braddock, said the priest. He is young and clearly needs to learn a little more decorum. Julia smiled despite herself. I wasn't offended, she replied. Frankly, I'm glad that someone would still look at me with this scar. She added with a light laugh, dancing in her voice. Besides, she'd decided the young man probably deserved a good look after the knock on the head she'd given him the night before. Call the debt settled, she thought as she grabbed the tunic from the foot of the bed and pulled it on over her head. It was a little bit large for her slight frame, but it would do for now until she could get some fresh clothes. Well, began the priest, it's time we talk about what brought you into our care. That was an excerpt from The Forbidden Scrolls by Matthew Seska. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, Where can people find you? Uh, Do you have a website? Where can they buy your book? Uh, Fill us in on all that good stuff.
1: Uh, Right now, I am on Amazon. I expect that will uh, expand as time goes on. Um, You can find everything about my books at mattseska.com. Um, on Twitter as uh, Nightshade386, and on TikTok as Nightshade underscore 386 because somebody
2: stole my handle before I got there. (laughs) That's unfortunate. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Mm -hmm. All right. And we will also put those links down in the bio. Uh, Matt, it was awesome talking to you today. It was a ton of fun. We are all kindred D&D spirits here. So thank (laughs) you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely, guys. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, thank you, Matt have a good rest of your day you too
2: All right. so once again this has been an interview with Matthew Seska author of the Forbidden Scrolls trilogy you can go check him out at the links in the bio we strongly encourage you to check out Forbidden Scrolls it's an excellent fantasy novel especially if you're a fan of like classic D&D type fantasy it's totally going to be up your alley yeah I've been Clay Vermullum
0: and I've been Travis Vermullum
2: And we are both still those people. Bye. Bye.